Hi, everyone, and welcome to season three of the Engaging Gray podcast, where we explore what it means to live engaged in the complex, ambiguous, and messy reality that is life. I'm Mary Young, founder of Gray Space Collaborative, an intentional collector of diverse experiences, and your host for this podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Gray Space uh, Podcast, the Engaging Gray Podcast. I have the distinct honor of introducing our guest, Carl Erickson, today. Carl is the founder and executive chairman of Atomic Object, a custom software design and development company. He is the co-founder of Mater Mill, which is a sawmill in Indiana, and chairman of the Michigan Capital Network. He's been a boss, a mentor, and a friend, and I'm so pleased to have him join us this morning. Carl, welcome. Good morning, Mary. Nice to be here. Thank you. So, Carl, uh, software, sawmills, investments. Um, at first glance, these seem really unrelated. Are they as unrelated as they seem? Or tell us a little bit about how you got involved with, with each of these uh, distinct uh, careers or jobs. Yeah, on the surface, they don't really have much to do with each other, do they? Uh, but I, do, I think it all hangs together, actually, as part of my journey. I was a professor of computer science for 10 years, teaching at uh, Grand Valley State University and was anxious to do something else. I wasn't sure what, but I know that the status quo of the university wasn't exactly right for me after 10 years. And the um, opportunity came up to start uh, to, to build a, a development branch of a company down in Austin, Texas. And that company uh, was great for a year. I learned a ton. I was having a ball. I was doing cool things. Uh, and unfortunately, it ran out of money in uh, March or July of 2001. So Atomic came from the ashes of that dot-com startup, basically, which I describe uh, as, you know, completely sincerely as the best failure I've ever been a part of because it got me out of the university, broke those golden handcuffs, and left me free to do my own thing. Mm. So having been got, gotten out of there and, and figuring out how to do business was getting dumped into the deep end of the pool. You know, none of my three degrees have anything to do with knowing how to run a business or manage people or do sales and marketing or finances or anything like that. So I had a lot to learn. Uh, and, you know, long story short, that was 20, almost 21 years ago now that went well. It turned out that following my instincts about how to set up a business, about how to treat people, about how to organize finances, about what to do about employee ownership, uh, those sorts of things, customer relationships, business processes, the exciting technology that we were using, meaning the, the agile software development process, uh, processes that we were refining at the time. Those things all worked out really, really well and put me in a position of owning a company that has uh, is quite profitable and generates substantially more um, revenue or more profit for the shareholders of that company than I would have ever guessed or planned to achieve. Mm. That in turn led me to being in a position to be an angel investor. And so my relationship with uh, Grand Angels, which is a couple of years ago became the Michigan Capital Network, uh, ended up being the place where I would express my support for new startup companies um, through investment. And that led to uh, uh, working on the board and eventually becoming uh, the chairman of the board uh, about three years ago. 
It also, in a, sense, in a strange way, explains how I can be the co-founder of the sawmill with my brother-in-law. I contribute um, the financial backing and understanding and governmental support and uh, accounting type stuff. Uh, and also inventory management and, you know, just generic strategic business thinking. And my sawmills, the, uh, my brother-in-law is the expert in sawmills. So in some ways, I'm an investor there, but I'm way more than invest an investor there because it's been a pretty rough three years to have a brand new business in the sawmill industry. Um, I, I mean, I, I understand why, why that is because we've talked about it, but maybe give just a, a brief overview of why. I mean, a sawmill is not a type of industry that most people are very familiar with. What's been particularly difficult about operating a sawmill in the past couple of years? So we take logs that we buy from local landowners from a lot through a logger and we turn those logs into the raw material material you use to make a pallet. So the, the runners that hold the pallet up and then the decking that goes on top that you put stuff on to ship it. Pretty much everything on earth ships on a pallet at one time or another. So it's a really critical industry in the whole world. And the trouble was that we um, borrowed a bunch of money and uh, built a mill out, brand new mill out from scratch in about seven months time, starting in early 2019. And we were just into production, uh, first production about October of 19 and, and starting to get the machines tuned up and hire the staff and all these things you gotta do when you make some, some brand new thing, you gotta get it running smoothly when we started feeling the effects in December of what turned out to be COVID, the international effects. And then of course, by March of 2020, everyone knew it was COVID and the economy just absolutely tanked. And so we struggled from you know that point in time, March of 2020, right through March of 2021, basically, with very, very few orders, really, really hard to get um, jobs to do. So our revenues were way down from what they should have been, and yet we had this debt load that assumed we'd have a, you know, more of a, a functioning business. Um, and then in about March or April 21, so just about a year ago now, we, um, we saw the demand turn around. So people wanted to buy our, our material, but unfortunately the log supply got all screwed up and the labor market is, was and continues to be chaotic. So mm -hmm. it's hard to find people it's hard to hold on to them. Very, very tricky. So we're still running quite short-staffed. It's cool to see how uh, we have responded to this dire situation through innovation, basically. If I had asked my brother-in-law, in fact, I did ask my brother-in-law when we were setting up the business model back in early 2019, late 2018, how many people will it take to run a first shift? He would have said, he did say, confidently, 14 to 15 people. And we have had, we've never been able to get over 10 folks. And yet with 10 people, we're reaching up towards 55, 60% of our design capacity. So that, that's um, still well underneath where we need to be financially, but it's amazing what we've figured out how to do with fewer folks. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that context. I think, you know, sometimes one of the recurring kind of themes as I've talked to different different folks on the podcast this season is that we often grow up and expect to have this very linear career path, right? 
you go in, you get a degree, and now you've set yourself up and you build, you know, you grow in an industry or in a company, and that's your career. And yet, there are so many other ways to have a career and so many other ways to build a fulfilling life that has you contributing to the world in many different ways. And your journey is so similar to that. You shared how you have multiple degrees and, and were a professor. And so you shared some of these milestones, barriers, and moments along your journey. Um, one of the things that I'm really curious about is you talked about um, you had a lot to learn. So what was that like in the very early parts of your, okay, I just left this, you know, golden handcuff job, right? This stable, I know what's going to happen. I have this availability for my family job with the university to go and do this thing for a year, which helped you learn a lot, but then it was done, right? And what made you decide to take another risk by starting a business rather than maybe trying to go back or find more stability after that ended? That's a really good question. The rational thing to do to have done in July of 2001 would have been gone, to go back to the dean at the university and said, geez, that was a really rash decision I made a few months ago to resign my position permanently. How about I come back? And I never even thought about doing it. And I've oftentimes stopped to try to figure out, like, why did I not even think about doing that? And I think partly it was because I was still learning so much, which is a place in which I thrive, but also because I was 39 years old and we'd led a very, like, a, a financially responsible life. So while we did certainly have a lot of obligations, we had two little kids. We had a mortgage, you know, all the usual kinds of things that you have around that time of that season of life. Mm -hmm. um, I also, I didn't have, we didn't have like credit card debt or we weren't living in a house we couldn't really afford without, um, you know, 100% of our previous salaries and that kind of stuff. So I had options that I hadn't thought about buying for myself, but in effect, through the decisions we'd made about how we lived over the years, we bought ourselves options. And um, I was also confident that I had a, a small group of, uh, of people <laughs> around me. Um, my partner, Bill, who's a former student, and we had three <clears throat> interns, uh, one of whom is uh, currently our co-CEO. And those, though, we were doing great stuff. And I figured, like, if we, can, if we can solve problems for people, we can solve problems. We just need to find people who have problems to solve. And in this case, mm -hmm. it was problems, software problems. So... Software is important in the world and was becoming more and more important over time. I just needed to find those people somehow. And, and that's what I gave a shot at for the first, I don't know, six or so months and, and got a first customer and then found a second customer and then a third customer and just basically organically worked towards keeping people busy. And there are certainly some scary points along the way. And <clears throat> Bill and I didn't pay ourselves very much for those first couple of years to make it work, that's in effect, we funded our own startup by uh, working well under market wage, but that was uh, better than trying to borrow money. And we pieced together, you know, the work and did a good job and word of mouth started happening and people wanted more of the customers we had, wanted more of our help. And uh, it just kept rolling from there. Mm. 
You know, I think that when I talk with founders, that's always kind of the hope, right? Is that you just do a good enough job and it kind of grows. What, did it grow as fast as you were hoping to? Did it grow faster, slower, or did you not have many expectations about its growth trajectory when you first kind of started out? So I am not the sort of person who makes a plan to, you know, like a five-year growth plan. And this goes back to like who I am as a person, not just for Atomic, but I, you know, I spent 10 years in higher education and I got a PhD, not because upon entry into grad school, I thought I really want to be a professor. That's what I decided through grad school. But I didn't go in saying, oh, absolutely have to, I want to be a professor, therefore I have to get a PhD. I got a PhD because I enjoy learning. I love the academic environment. And that was a good way to be for those five years. So when I came out and, and started being a professor, I, I didn't say, I'm going to do this for a certain number of years and then I'm going to have another career. I did that. I did that teaching. I loved it. <clears throat> I did research projects. I got grants. I built labs. All of that was great fun until it wasn't. And then I looked for something else. And an opportunity came about with a former student of mine. I didn't plan for that. But I saw the opportunity and I was in a position to take advantage of it and give it a shot. Confident that I don't know where this is going. Like it's a startup and they may, you know, not last. The odds are low, in fact. And it didn't last. And then I had to do something else. And that's where Atomic came out of. So at every one of these stages, it, it doesn't look like, oh, yes, I have faithfully executed this brilliant five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan I laid out. Mm -hmm. I just saw opportunities, and I wasn't afraid to step into them and try it. And some of them didn't work out. I, I probably don't even remember the ones that didn't work out very well anymore. Certainly, there are a lot of things we tried at Atomic that didn't work. But there were experiments that didn't sink us either. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I am... I do believe I participated in a business plan competition sort of just for the heck of it in um, probably 2002. And uh, I, I was doing a product uh, that we were toying with the idea. There's one that didn't work out, toying with the idea of building and selling. And we sold a few of them, but we didn't sell many. But um, I flipped around in the middle of this business plan competition to just focus on Atomic because that's where my heart was. That's what I really cared about. That's what I was excited about. The judges totally panned this idea of building Atomic, which I find amusing nowadays. But um, in having to build a business plan competition, you've got to make a five-year projection on your revenue. And I think I projected that we'd hit a million dollars of revenue in the first five years, something like that. We had a million dollars of revenue at like year two and a half. So it, it was significantly, it grew significantly faster than my business plan predicted. But like I didn't make that... <laughs> It was more because I had to make the projection than because I thought it was important to make the projection, if you see mm. what I do, which is very counterintuitive to what most people tell you you need when you're starting a business, yeah. right? Um, what, you know, what lessons did you learn about yourself at each stage of that journey? You know, did you know all of these insights about, I like to do things that interest me, I need to follow my instincts, trust my instincts. You know, did you know all of that about yourself prior to starting, you know, Atomic and, and entering into all of these phases? Or were they things that you uncovered about yourself as you stepped through and into these new stages? No, much more the latter. I, 
it would be dishonest to say that I, you know, saw that that was the right thing to do from the get go and just boldly and confidently executed that strategy. Um, it was, there were scary times. There were times when I'm thinking like, what the hell do I know about, you know, creating a company or running a business? I don't have an MBA and I, I can read about what the right way to do stuff is, but it doesn't feel right to me. And I'm going to go with what feels right to me. I'm going to build the company I want to work for. I want to treat people the way that um, I believe you should treat people. And I'm not going to sweat what the sort of right way of doing this is or the conventional way to organize things are. So, you know, the fact that I was willing to do that was not because I was 100% confident about all of those things, that uh, about my instincts and trusting my instincts. I definitely learned to trust them more and more over time. And um, but I guess I I guess I it was either stubborn enough or confident enough or something enough to um, give them some rope. And and maybe it's just well, I wasn't willing to compromise because I had alternatives. And, you know, it's hard work building a company. There's quite a few sacrifices and a lot of time and took a lot of my energy and, and emotional uh, capacity. So who the heck is going to do that? to build something you don't even like or that mm. you're building it in somebody else's image of what's correct. Like that'd be crazy. So I, I guess in that, and I, I was adamant from the beginning, I'm not going to do something that doesn't feel right to me. I, I really love that. You brought up two things that I, I want to dive into. One is you said I wasn't willing to compromise because I had alternatives and you know, I often reflect on this of the difference between starting a business from a place of privilege versus not a place of privilege, right? And privilege can look all sorts of ways, right? It can look like, you know, coming from a family with money. It can look like, you know, having saved enough money and starting a business later. It can look like having different types of connections. It can look like you know, being taken seriously at a bank, there are all sorts of things, but what that does for you when you start a business out of a place of privilege is it seems to, to give you this option of saying, nope, I'm going to, to build it the way that I want to. Um, and it can, and not worry if it takes a little bit longer to, you know, I mean, you, we're fortunate in that Atomic grew faster than you were expecting, which is fantastic. But sometimes we build something counterintuitively to how everyone expects it and it takes longer. And that only becomes really a possibility when you have these other, these other things around you, right? These other alternatives, these um, safety nets that either you or your family or society is built around you. Um, have you how have you kind of seen that play out uh, even being a now angel investor in what risks or not risks or um, commitment to values people are willing to do based on, on those different things. And it doesn't necessarily have to be based on privilege, but how have you seen privilege play a part in uh, founders journeys? Yeah, I think you're, you're right when it comes to the, the various things that go under the label privilege giving you more options. I see that with, in, uh, with, eight, with early stage investments and uh, founders who don't have um, the network to be able to find people who will make those brave early investments 
or they don't have family members who have who can who can guide them or advise them or heck just be a role model for what it means to be a successful entrepreneur um, or they didn't have you know the college education to give you the confidence of like if this doesn't pan out I guess I'll get a job and know mm-hmm. that that's an option for sure that impacts it um, access to capital is a big way that shows up that's one of the one of the motivating factors for me at the Michigan Capital Network, actually. Um, but there was something else in there you asked that I thought was interesting to follow up on, but I just distracted myself away from it. <coughs> what else did you say there? Well, I wondered, you know, that sometimes it can take longer to build something when you're trying to do it counterintuitively to... Ah, uh, yes, yes. ...how the world expects it. So I think the best way to build something that is successful uh, and will grow is to not focus on making it grow. And I uh, call this the great not big philosophy, which also happens to be the name of my blog where I write about stuff like this. So Atomic never had a growth goal or a growth plan. And what it did have was a philosophy of being the best we could possibly be and continually getting better at the things we did. So those, if those were internal things or those were for mostly important, most importantly for customers, how can we solve customers' problems? How can we deliver better software? How can we make the business of working with us more pleasant? Constantly, unrelentingly working to improve those things. And what happens is if that's where your focus is, you do get better. And if you get better, people want more of you and more of your time, and they tell their friends about you. And so you have more and more demand for your services and you grow. Growth happens as a consequence of being as good as you can possibly be, not because you set a growth goal or you explicitly worked on growing. So I think growth is a dangerous thing to focus on. I think it's much better to focus on your business and being solving people's problems, offering a great product, making it a great experience, and then growth will happen and you'll have to deal with it. Growth is a thorny, thorny problem and it Mm. upsets structure. It upsets organization, organizational roles. It stresses, you know, capacities financially. It stresses capacities from a facilities standpoint. Like it is not an easy problem to solve. Right. Yeah. We aim for this thing and forget that it's actually a, a, Thing we're going to have to solve in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. That it's it's not the end by itself, but something we're going to have to solve for. Is is that maybe one of the biggest misconceptions in your opinion about founding a business or uh, is about focusing on growth? Or what are some of those misconceptions in your opinion about founding a business? Or even now that you've come, you've come through founding and maintaining to, you know, in many ways, exiting the day-to-day uh, work. What are some of those misconceptions that you've seen that really hold people back in finding fulfillment in business and the work that they're doing? I think the popular media focuses on the the crazy needle in the haystack, you know, one in a million cases like Facebook or mm-hmm. various other, uh, especially technology companies that are uh, that grew so rapidly and have become so large now or so influential or so profitable or so whatever it is like 
and then and then those stories all end up being about you know i i need to raise venture capital money to get there and i think that is mostly not the truth like mm-hmm. mostly most companies don't need to raise vc funds in order to grow uh, or to succeed or to become some of them do there's some things that are just really hard to do unless you raise a bunch of money and invest a bunch of money before you know you um have a product to sell and sometimes software companies are that way but sometimes but not always and certainly service businesses are not that way so mm-hmm. i i find myself amused by the fact that i'm a venture capitalist and yet I, I'm more likely to talk, try to talk people out of raising venture capital funds than I am to uh, talk them into it or figure out who I want to invest in. So mm. not to say that I don't invest in venture, in venture-backed businesses, because I think there's some really interesting ones that are very important and there's no other way to do it. But right. I'm, I'm more and more interested in companies that can um, organically grow by focusing on their customers, offering a great service, treating people well, being patient, uh, using the power of time. You t- time is an extremely powerful lever. Uh, and that is means you need to be set up to use it. You need to be able to survive economically while time works its magic and you uh, spread the knowledge of your important business um, through word of mouth and through happy customers and through repeat business and refine your offering. You do all that, and if you can find find a way to survive in the early years, then you will have a much stronger business as a result of it, and you won't have to borrow money or mm. take take on funding. Mm-hmm. What about later? You know, what are some of the misconceptions that you you've seen? You know, so in my work, I feel like uh, sometimes the skill set to be a founder is not the same skill set as maybe sometimes is needed for you know, maintaining a business, right? Um, because you get bored, right? The the power of a founder mentality is sometimes that of a visionary, someone who's willing to take risks, who is confident and willing to stick to the road, whereas sometimes maintaining something, it does require those things, but it all, it maybe, you know, balance those, those out with patience, uh, with, you know, willing to kind of wade through monotony of the same things over and over again, right. In order to level set. Um, and then even for, you know, how to go from a founder to maintaining to even saying, yeah, I can actually let this thing go. What are some of the misconceptions that you've heard or that you experienced that you had to kind of reevaluate before you were able to happily move into a new phase with your own business? I, I see my my 21 career 21 year career at Atomic as a series of promoting myself to a, a new position that I didn't know how to do. So you know I started out just writing code, and that was super fun and exciting and lots to learn and interesting. And I got to work closely with other smart young people about who were, were developers. And then it became quickly apparent that if I continued to do that you know, we weren't going to be around very long because nobody else was in a position to figure out how to do sales and marketing and finances and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I had to sort of think about myself as like, you know, working on the business, not in the business, while I was still working in the business. It was never a clean transition. 
And then, you know, it became apparent that our ability to write code had exceeded our ability to manage projects. So I had to figure that one out. I became like a project manager. And then, you know, I found other people who could, uh, who could learn those project management things and take that over. And then I find my, found myself back in managing larger teams or teams, a team of teams. And that was a new position. Then just went on and on and on until this, I think the, I have the job I have now, I think is the last job I'll have. Um, uh, executive chairman, that's a part-time job. I work closely with our co-CEOs. I do things that don't matter in the short run at all. So there's no operational stuff, but I'm thinking about the longer term. I'm thinking about ownership and how our ownership plan works and how we make that stable to reach our, our hundred year goal strategic questions and issues, our, our product offering, like how do we come to market, what threats there might be to that market offering, all of these longer, longer term important things. Um, and, you know, when I stepped into this job three years ago, I didn't know what this job was going to be. And I figured it out on the fly with, you know, through collaborating with our co-CEOs. But I think it's become and uh, and I hope the last job I have at Atomic, honestly. Mm. Do you, you know, do you feel like sometimes people hold on to what they assume their job is supposed to be rather than allowing themselves to make that transition? It sounded like you, again, uh, a, a superpower or something that sounds like it's served you really well is this willingness to, in some ways, not plan, but to respond and you're planning now, right? Like you're a very strategic person. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is rather than being stuck to, this is what I said I was going to do. This is what the plan was. This is what I said my job was going to be. And now I have to stick to that, that you've allowed yourself to ebb and flow, grow, change with the company, the company's needs over time. Do you see that that um, is hard for some people when they're <laughs> trying to lead a business? Yeah, what worked for me won't work for everybody. It just depends on what you bring to the table and who you are. So the combination that was, um, I think, effective for me was the flexibility that I that I exhibit. I, I jokingly call it a superpower because somebody labeled it that way once. Um, but I think it really is a superpower, which also means it has downsides. But so the flexibility combined with generalist skills. I, mm. I was able to, you know, start a company, but then run a company for a lot of years and not, but not indefinitely. Like there's still, even I, with my generalist skills and my flexibility, you know, I probably at each stage held on too long to what I was good at doing or what I was enjoying doing and mm. what, you know, the world was telling me I was, um, good at and accomplished for and and all that so you know while while in the earliest stages while i was a programmer it was super fun and i enjoyed learning new things there and getting better and better and it would been it was tempting to hold on to that because it's a very straightforward satisfying kind of hey i wrote this code it's good code i've tested it i know it's right i go home i'm kind of done that's awesome kind of job but if I held on to it, Atomic never would have gotten past two or three people. And so it is comfortable, but you have to resist that comfort and go into a place where you don't know 
what's the right way to do something. And you're going to make mistakes and no one's going to tell you how smart you are, or how well you did that because you probably didn't do it all that well. Or you simply don't know what well is like, you don't know what's the right thing to do or what a good solution looks like. And you're going to make some mistakes and you'll have to learn that, learn through that. Not a comfortable place to be, actually. So you have to be okay with that. And therefore, I think the temptation certainly happened to me is at each stage, you probably held on a little too long. Mm. What helped you eventually move, move on? And did you find it easier later to recognize that pattern in yourself yeah i i think so i i think it gets a little bit better with practice like most things Mm -hmm. you also have you know more resources as as your as your company is growing to give you more options so suddenly you're not needing to do you know all of the bookkeeping you can bring someone in and have them help do that and you know those those things get easier over time if you're if you're so inclined if you're wise enough to recognize that you can't do all the things and you shouldn't be doing all the things and then you have some some resources to help you figure out other ways of getting those things done it becomes quite awesome because then you have a team of amazing people uh, uh, some of whom are doing things that you had been doing better than what you how you did them which mm-hmm. is incredible to see and then the next stage you recognize is holy moly look at these interesting ideas and these things we're doing these projects we've done these uh new programs we have in place that i had nothing to do with and that was because (laughs) because you hire you know smarter people or different people and um they are empowered you trust them they do their thing and magic happens that's super Mm -hmm. satisfying when you get to that stage Mm. so what are you most proud of in in this whole journey so it can be about atomic it can be about mater mill capital it can be about none of those things but when you look back at this journey that you've been on what is what is it that you're most proud of and and then is that what you thought you would be proud of when you started like if you were to ask your you know self back in 2001, hey, you're going to do this thing. What do you think you're going to be most proud of at the end of it? Do you think that your answer then and now would be the same? Yeah, I think it probably would be. The, the um, you know, the, like the, the traditional measurements of success, I have a lot of. The, the financial the wealth that's been generated by Atomic has, you know, given, given us more wealth than I ever thought we'd have or really sought in any way so in that sense conventionally I I wasn't measuring it that way but it's been successful but so I think what I would have said in 2001 is um, I get to do interesting work learn new things solve problems help people out and I do it with people I enjoy and I've had lots of that through Atomic I have a lot of that with my sawmill partner um, Scott and his son Donnie those guys are awesome partners and we've been through the ringer together with a sawmill mm-hmm. and it's been despite, you know, the financial losses and uh, much more time than I ever thought I'd put into it. It's been very satisfying work, <laughs> very satisfying work to do with them. Um, I think there's the common pattern there. And now I see that happening at um, 
the Michigan Capital Network, the, the team there has really rallied around what I've been pushing for a couple of years now since we uh, refactored the organization to, to go statewide is our, our new purpose, which is to uh, educate, grow, and diversify the base of early stage investors in Michigan. And, you know, we had an event last week that exemplified uh, what this can look like. We had 165 early stage investors, angel investors, and company founders come together in Lansing from all across the state. And that was the most racially diversified room I think anyone had ever seen in an event like that in Michigan, which is pretty, pretty cool to see and got everybody uh, very excited about the potential for uh, bringing new uh, underrepresented groups into early stage investing, both for what it can mean for the wealth generation for um, uh, black families and the mm -hmm. gap between black and white families. And uh, but also, you know, when you start getting different investors, you start getting different founders. There's a natural inclination towards uh, and, and connection to and network of um, uh, underrepresented founders. And we're not pushing for that yet because we're not ready for that, but we're getting ready to be ready for that. And that is very exciting in the long run, what it's going to do for, I think, the capital continuum and availability in, uh, in Michigan. Yeah. You know, as I as I'm listening to you, uh, something that just keeps coming to my mind is this idea of like structured flexibility, which is one of my favorite hmm. ideas to say like there there are some things that are constant that are, you know, evergreen. Right. I knew from the minute that I started, I wanted to do interesting things, solve problems, do it with good people. Um, you know, I wanted to build something that I enjoyed, like there have been these constants, even with all of the changing of roles and flexibility that you've shown, there's, it, it's been within this, this container, right? And yeah, there, within a container. And also, I think what you're touching on is really interesting, Mary, it's like, underlying values that have nothing to do with whatever your commercial purpose is. Mm hmm. And, you know, that's what I, I try to talk with individuals and businesses alike, uh, because there's so many messages coming in, right, all the time from social media, from the news, from advisors, like you get so many messages about how you're supposed to do things, what's going to work the best, what's the most responsible, you know, all of these different things. And while you want to take them in, right, some of them. Uh, not all of them, let's be honest, but some of them you want to take in and heed their advice. You also need to know, like, what is your actual core foundation? Yeah. What are you actually building from? And can that build lots of different things? Or is it so narrow? Is it such a small foundation that it can really only build this one thing? And then if that's true, what does that do when a wind comes and blows it over or, you know, these things that upheave the foundation of, of that building comes to, you know, I think that we become much more sustainable people, not just our businesses become more successful and sustainable, but we as individuals, as leaders become more sustainable when we know that foundation that we're building from, we have that, these are the solid things let's redecorate, let's change, you know, if we're thinking of a house analogy, right? Like your foundation stays the same, 
but like hey if we need to move walls if we need to like redecorate if we need to add a story like we can do all of that but our foundation doesn't change and I hear that really coming through within your story yeah and I think we can tie this back to not setting a growth goal or setting a a goal of like you know a big ambitious hairy goal like the sort of conventional business wisdom is you if you work on sufficiently interesting problems they're going to be really hard to solve and you may never in fact solve them so if your entire definition of success is in like solving this problem or accomplishing accomplishing something or building a billion dollar business high likelihood you're going to be disappointed if instead Mm -hmm. you focus on how you go about doing it what you do the process and enjoying that and taking pleasure and pride from how you operate, what you, how you interact with people, what you're bringing to the world, and um, holding true to your, these core values that are informing who you are as a person and what you believe, then you can't lose. You can't fail. You can keep fighting and you can keep working toward it, being satisfied with what you're doing because of how you're sticking to your values and you're honoring the process and the work you're doing and the effort you're making, instead of just a mind, a, like laser focus on the ultimate accomplishment mm-hmm. at, at, at a sacrifice probably of your core beliefs or at a sacrifice, a temptation to sacrifice your core beliefs, a temptation to sh- take shortcuts or to use a process or to, um, to establish practices or, or make choices that are out of alignment with your beliefs or, or who you are as a person or that you mm-hmm. just feel uncomfortable with. Is there any, is there ever a time, you know, cause we, we talked a lot about this idea of persevering. Is there ever a time when perseverance uh, looks maybe not like continuing with the thing that you started? I think sometimes you just hit a place where you don't have any options and that's where you need to be able to recognize, you know, when it's time to make a a bigger change. And I think it's easier to do, to do those things, to, to recognize, yeah, this is, I thought I was going to be able to do this. It turns out there's things beyond me or stuff I don't have, or the world's changed around me in in what I thought um, that you need to, to pivot or, find a new place to go. But I think that's a lot easier if you've held true to your, your core values Mm -hmm. and how you go about doing things. Cause then Mm -hmm. it doesn't wreck your life when you figure out this isn't going to work. It's not the end Mm -hmm. of the world. I can take my core values. I can take out what I've learned. I can take how I do things and I can move in another direction. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, even for myself sometimes who works in this space of, you know, what I often say is I I try to help people reconnect with their full humanity Hmm. apart from just their, their ability to produce, but to understand like the fullness of who they are, because that is when, when you understand the fullness of who you are, your production is only one aspect of who you are. Right. And so it's, it's much less scary. Um, when you have to shift or when that doesn't measure up in one particular area, because maybe you're then able to say, well, yeah, I'm producing less in this area because this other area of who I am, you know, I'm taking care of aging parents in this season. Right. 
Um, we have some friends who their high school senior just got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Like your production will look different in seasons in which other aspects of your life and your humanity require more of your attention. But when you're building from a foundation of your underlying values, you can still, even if you're producing less, you could still do interesting things, solve interesting problems and do it with people you enjoy. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and be satisfied and look back on that season and say, I didn't have to compromise this other aspect of my humanity in order to continue to produce. Right. I was able to hold all of these things kind of in this gray ever flowing kind of space. Yeah. I like how you, how you say that. I think that's exactly what I mean about, um, not focusing on the accomplishment and focusing on how you go about getting there and who you are Mm -hmm. as a person. That's very good. So one last question, Carl, if you had any advice that you would want to leave for founders, leaders, anyone on their journey from just beginning a business or maybe thinking about like finding their last role in their business, what would your advice be uh, for folks? Hmm. Well, I think what we have touched on here at the end is probably the most important thing to learn. Stay true mm-hmm. to yourself. Honor your entire humanity. Don't don't define your success as, you know, what your one commercial activity on earth happens to be or accomplishing a certain level of uh, fame or wealth. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of awesome work to do, you know, and you can do it in a way that um, keeps true to who you are. And you may be surprised, as I was surprised, at how much conventionally measured success those, that thing generates. But if, mm-hmm. if that's your goal, you're probably going to get disappointed because mm-hmm. it's hard to achieve those goals. And, you know, what I have learned in spades is that those goals, achieving those goals of, of wealth in particular or, or fame, though I've not achieved that, but you know, those probably aren't as fulfilling as you think they're going to be when you set out to achieve them. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, achieving growth of yourself as a person and in your relationships, however you define those and with whomever, uh, those are long lasting, satisfying achievements. And if the other stuff comes along, huh, cool. And if it doesn't, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, Carl, I really appreciate your time this morning and for you sharing your wisdom. I think that it's so easy sometimes to look at folks such as yourself and to say, oh, okay, I, I want my business and my growth to look exactly like this other person. And it's so refreshing when people are willing to kind of pull back the curtain and be like, well, that's not how I did it. <laughs> that's actually not, that's actually not a thing, you know, um, you know, and to have that authenticity is, is both refreshing and it's encouraging to everyone else to say, okay, yeah, how does this work and look for me? So that when I get to where Carl is, I don't just feel, um, you know, wow, I, I built this thing, but I also feel proud of who I am and how I got there. So yeah. thank you yeah. so much for sharing that with us this morning. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been um, fun as always to chat. Thank you for listening to the Engaging Gray podcast. 
hope that it gave you hope, encouragement, or tools that you can use to stay engaged in the ambiguous and messy reality we call life. For more from this podcast, visit gracebasecollaborative.com forward slash podcast and follow us on social media to stay tuned for next episodes.